Well, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me. And let's look together at the book of Romans. The book of Romans. This great letter. We have been working our way verse by verse through the book of Romans. We have just finished that passage that we've called the Mount Everest of the Bible. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And this morning now we come to the end of chapter 3. We're going to begin reading Romans chapter 3 in verse 27. Verse 27. And here's what we find there. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul has just explained to us in verses 21 through 26 the most glorious truth a sinner could ever here, we can be made righteous in the sight of God by believing on Jesus Christ. Our sins can be forgiven. Christ's righteousness can be imputed to us. We can be reconciled to God, have Him and have His love forever. No hell. No condemnation, no wrath, and all that is required is that we believe on Christ, that we entrust ourselves to the Son of God. Having now explained this, where will Paul take us next? Having just explained the most glorious truth in the world, what do you say now? Where do you go? Well, as we come to the last paragraph of chapter 3, we see here two implications that Paul brings out of the Gospel. The first has to do with pride. It has to do with boasting. Namely, if we understand and believe the Gospel, boasting is excluded. Boasting in ourselves has no place in the Christian life. The second implication is that if we understand and believe the Gospel, then we understand that the salvation offered in the Gospel is for all people. It is for Jew and it is for Gentile. We're going to talk about that next week. This morning, our focus is on verses 27 and 28. And the first implication that Paul brings out of the gospel, namely that boasting is excluded. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church 
If we have been saved, we must understand that we have no grounds for pride. No grounds. We cannot congratulate ourselves on being saved. We cannot think high thoughts of our works. And he mentions the law of faith. Uh, some versions translate that word law here is the word principle. Um, but he uses the same word down later in the passage. And clearly he's referring to the law. In fact, I think he's referring to views of the Old Testament law in particular. Namely, one view is a misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. One view is a proper understanding of the Old Testament law. One view allows for boasting. Another view prohibits boasting. So let's see the difference. Paul mentions the law of works. Do you see that in the verse? See that phrase, the law of works? The idea is that when you look at, for example, the Old Testament law, you see it as a list of good deeds to be performed and a list of wicked deeds to be avoided. And this list of commands serves you as a ladder whereby you may climb your way into heaven. You keep the works of the law and you will be righteous before God. You don't have to be perfect. Because included in the works of the law are sacrifices and offerings to be made for when you mess up. But this is a salvation of works. Keep the works of the law and you will be righteous in the eyes of God. Be faithful in performing certain deeds, living a certain way, and you will be saved. Friends, is that the way you understand the Old Testament law? When you're reading at home in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, those commands in Deuteronomy, are you understanding these commands to be God saying to His people of that time, live this way, obey these commands, keep these rules, and via these works you will find your way into heaven? Is that the way the Old Testament law was to function? And the answer is absolutely not. Back in verse 20, verse 20, we saw that no human being can be justified by works of the law. How many human beings can be justified by works of the law? Zilch. Zero. None. Why can no one be justified by works of the law? Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. As someone tries to keep the law... The Spirit of God is working. The law will be used to open their eyes to see that their heart is opposed to the law. That is, their heart is opposed to the good commands of God. Their heart is unrighteous and does not want the righteous commands that our God gives to us. In other words, the law is not an instruction manual on how we can achieve righteousness. It's a mirror whereby we discover how unrighteous we are. The whole point of the law, including sacrifices, including circumcision, including feast days, was to point the Jews to a righteousness outside of themselves whereby they could be saved. 
The whole point of the law was to point the Old Testament Jews to the Messiah who would come, to Christ, to the gospel of salvation by faith. The Old Testament law is not fundamentally a law of works. It is a law of faith. It was meant to bring about faith. It was meant to teach faith. One of the great errors of seeing the Old Testament law as a law of works whereby you can get yourself to heaven is this. If salvation can be obtained that way, you have grounds for boasting. You have grounds for pride. And dear friends, Paul knows that there can be no place for pride in God's gospel scheme. Pride, listen carefully, pride is the great enemy of God and God's people. Pride is how sin came into this world to begin with. It is pride that drives Satan in all of his wicked works. It is pride that lies underneath each and every one of our sins. Pride in ourselves as if we are something apart from God. In and of ourselves, I am something is the cause of every evil, every sickness, every disaster that has ever been experienced in the world. It was pride that brought the curse. So the idea that God's way of salvation would be one that makes room for pride is preposterous. The idea that God's scheme of salvation, that God's gospel could have a place for pride is utterly opposed to everything we know from the Bible. Whatever the way of salvation is, whatever the gospel must be, it must be something that excludes pride. If human pride is the enemy of God, if human pride is the enemy of God's glory, then surely God's way of salvation will trample pride. And that's exactly what the gospel does. The gospel kills our pride. The law of faith means that the teaching of the Old Testament law was that we are to look away from ourselves to Christ for salvation. Underneath every command of the Old Testament, this was the impetus. The gospel Paul is preaching is the same gospel that Jesus preached, which is the same gospel found in the Old Testament. We have it in in more color. We have it in all its brilliance. They had it in shadow form. But there is no different gospel between Genesis 3.15 and John 3.16. And Paul goes to great lengths, as we've already seen in the book of Romans, to show that his gospel is not a new gospel. It's the old gospel. It's the only gospel. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gospel of seeing your own sin and then looking away from yourself to God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ. No room for pride. I want you to consider everything that we've seen over the last weeks as we've studied verses 21 through 26. Your greatest need 
as an unrighteous human being is to be declared righteous in God's sight. Your unrighteousness must be removed and another righteousness must be found in its place. Christ bore the punishment your sins deserved so that your sins could be forgiven. Only because of Christ's cross can your unrighteousness be removed from before the eyes of God. Moreover, Christ lived for 33 years accomplishing the righteousness you lacked. It is only because Christ came as a representative of His people and fulfilled that righteousness that that righteousness has been provided to be placed onto your account. In other words, friends, everything you needed, Christ did. How can you boast? Everything that was necessary for forgiveness, Christ did. Everything that was necessary for you to be declared righteous, Christ did. Everything necessary for this to be done in such a way that God could remain just. Everything to be done to make sure that God could remain holy and forgive your sins, Christ did. Christ did everything. How can we boast? In fact... He did it all before we were ever born. Everything necessary was done 2,000 years ago. What will you boast in? Will you boast that your sins are forgiven? Jesus accomplished your forgiveness. Will you boast that God sees you as righteous? Christ accomplished your righteousness. Indeed, He is your righteousness. Will you brag as if you were the one whose wisdom discovered the way for God to be both just and the justifier? No, that was the wisdom of God that figured that out. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians about their salvation. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's all a gift. It's as if a crippled man must scale a mountain range in order to get some, to some village on the other side. A Savior comes, picks up the crippled man, and carries him the whole way. This Savior does all the work of figuring out how to get the crippled man over each mountain. This Savior does the work of carrying the man on His shoulders from miles on end, hoisting the man over obstacles, tying ropes around him and pulling him over ledges, scaling mountain after mountain. The man just lies there. The Savior does all the work. The Savior brings him down that last mountain, takes him into the village, sets him down, and the crippled man begins to boast so that all can hear. Look what I did. Look what I overcame. See those mountains? I conquered them. It was my wisdom that led me. It was my strength that hoisted me. It was my work that brought me here. Well, First of all, anybody that could see that this man was crippled would just scoff. And folks, when we begin to brag as if we're something in and of ourselves in the eyes of God, most people are going to scoff because they see who we really are. (laughs) They're not going to believe you. But we would also look at that man and say, how wicked to have been served in such a mighty way and then to try and take all the glory for himself. 
God forgive us should we ever do such a thing. Thomas Watson said this, proud nominal Christians do not lay the whole stress of their salvation upon Christ. No, they would mingle their dross with His gold. They would mingle their duties with His merits. This, Watson says, is to steal a jewel from Christ's crown and implicitly to deny Him to be a perfect Savior. Friends, is that you? Would you dare claim the glory for your salvation? What perfect life did you live? What cross did you bear? If you are saved, it is only because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. To Him be all the glory. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Galatians 6.14 Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Paul. You messed up. You messed up. Paul, you're you're acting as if this gospel makes no room for boasting. Paul, you're saying that Christ did everything and we did nothing, but you've messed up, Paul, because there's one thing I must do. I must believe. I must do that. Everything that Christ did in His life, everything that Christ did in His death, everything that Christ did in His resurrection and exaltation, it means absolutely nothing if I don't believe. So Paul, you've messed up. Because there is one thing I can boast in. I believed. I chose to believe. I can take credit for that. Is that right? No. Absolutely not. Faith is not the one work you can boast in. Faith is not a work you do. Faith is a work that God does in you. Jesus said in John 6.29, just listen, John 6.29, Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Your faith, dear Christian, is the work of God in your soul. Don't try and steal God's glory for the work of God for yourself. Were it not for God... Your eyes would still be closed to His greatness. Your ears would still be closed to the Gospel. Your heart would still be engrossed in the stuff of this world. The way God gives us faith is through Jesus Christ. All authority in this matter has been given to Christ. Matthew 11, verse 27, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So you see, it was Jesus who by His Spirit opened your eyes, opened your ears, and caused you to believe. So don't you see? Every part of your salvation, from beginning to end, every part of your salvation, it's owing to the grace of Christ. Mount Herman, look at me. I want you to hear this. Here is a test for false gospels. How can you discern a false gospel? 
If there is any place for human boasting, it is a false gospel. If all the glory does not belong to Christ, it is a false gospel. It is not worthy to be trusted. Now, as Christians, you might think that we would understand all this and that pride would not be a problem for us. But in reality, it is amazing how easily and subtly our souls can become puffed up. We can begin thinking of ourselves as if somehow we are more righteous in the sight of God than another believer because of something we've done or decisions we've made. This appears to have been the case in the church in Rome. When we eventually get to Romans 14, maybe a very long time from now, but when we eventually get to Romans 14, we will see some of the major issues over which there was conflict in the church in Rome. Church members at conflict with one another. And in particular, it appears that there were some in the church of Rome who were continuing to show loyalty to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. There is a way in which all Christians should be loyal to the law of the Old Testament. The gospel of Jesus is not opposed to the law of the Old Testament. You see the last verse of this chapter, the last verse of this chapter. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We're going to preach a whole sermon on that. What does it mean that we uphold the law? So there is a way that we as Christians are to remain loyal, but there were some Christians in Rome who were remaining loyal to the Old Testament law in ways that are not required by the Gospel. They were abstaining from eating meat. They had become vegetarians. They practiced vegetarianism probably because they couldn't be sure in their pagan Gentile city that the meat had been prepared in a kosher manner, keeping the laws of the Old Testament. There were Christians that abstained from wine because they couldn't be sure that the wine hadn't been used in pagan rituals. There were Christians that were observing certain days as holy days including some of the feast days of the Old Testament. These were genuine Christians. They believed on Jesus Christ. They rested in Christ as their righteousness before God. But for whatever reason, they had deemed that it was good for them to continue doing these things. And these were mainly Jewish Christians, but there were some Gentiles perhaps as well that were following their example. And so this was part of the church. Part of the church did not eat meat. Part of the church did not drink wine. Part of the church were keeping certain holy days. And then you had, probably we think, the majority of the church, mostly Gentile, there might have been some Jews in this number, who ate meat, who drank wine, who thought that no day was better than another. And so there was this conflict going on in the church of Rome. Can you imagine the kind of friction that could come about between differences of opinion on these matters. Can you imagine the work required to properly love a brother or sister in Christ who had a different view than you? Johnny wants to spend the night at Billy's house. Johnny's family doesn't believe in eating meat. Billy's family does. Billy's parents welcome Johnny over, but they serve a vegetarian meal. And they sit down with their own son and explain that though they don't think eating meat is wrong, serving it to this other boy would be tempting him to sin because he does think it's wrong. 
And so loving him meant eating a vegetarian meal. And so these are the kinds of things that this church had to think through if they were going to love one another despite these differences of opinion on some of these matters. There are all kinds of complexities at play. And Mount Hermon, we're not that different. If we were honest, there are a number of issues about which people in here are going to have different ideas. We're not talking about gospel issues. We're not talking about substantial doctrinal issues. We, we are to be of one faith. Right? We have confessions and, and, and things like that. For that reason, we own the most important things. We are united, but on a host of other lesser topics, we may think very differently from one another. I would guess that some in here probably listen almost exclusively to what we would call Christian music. And others in here would say it's okay to listen to some kinds of secular music if you do so with discernment. There are probably some parents in here whose children only see G movies. Others who let them see PG movies. Maybe some that let them see PG-13 movies. And maybe some that don't have a TV and don't watch movies, period. In our church, we have kids who go to public schools. We have kids who go to private school. And we have kids who are homeschooled. There are some in our church family who think it's fine to eat out on Sunday. Others in our church family who would prefer not to eat out on Sunday. So here we are of different opinions, different thoughts. Now here's the thing, and I want you to think about this with me. Those kinds of differences in this life are inevitable. But our tendency is for our differences to lead us into pride. In a very subtle way, we can begin to look down on brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently than we do and act differently than we do. Though we say with our lips that we are all justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we can begin to feel as though somehow we are more right with God than that Christian because of our view, our practice what we do or don't do compared to them. Let me just read this very clearly. Though we say with our lips that we as Christians are all justified by faith in Christ, we can begin to feel as though we are more right with God than a brother or sister in Christ because of some understanding we have or some choice we've made. You see, the real problem in the church in Rome was not about meat, and it was not about wine, and it was not about feast days. The real problem in the church of Rome was the subtle sense of having earned God's favor by self-righteousness, of the decisions I've made, the understanding I've come to. And this self-righteousness, if it begins to creep into our lives, will begin to express itself in judgmentalism, a wicked kind of judgmentalism towards others around us. Now, Paul's going to have to address that explicitly in Romans 14, but the truth is he's already helping this church deal with it. In Romans 2, he made clear, none of us have grounds to be judgmental towards others because we are all transgressors. Right? He addresses those who think they're the exception, and he says, you're not an exception. <laughs> right? 
None of us have grounds to be boastful. We're all dead sinners in the sight of God who apart from the grace of God, we're in trouble. In Romans 3, he brings the gospel to bear on the issue. How can I become self-righteous? How can I boast in myself? How can I begin to think that I'm somehow more right with God than someone else? Friend, you may very well have progressed greatly in your faith. More in your faith. More in your knowledge of the Scriptures. More in your understanding of the Bible than the brother or sister in Christ sitting near to you. But does that mean you are more right with God than they are? Are they not saved by the same righteousness you're saved by? And is the righteousness of Jesus, does it come in degrees? Or is it not full and perfect and complete? Are are the sins of your brother and sister in Christ not as completely forgiven as yours are? Has Christ not brought them into the same love in which you now live in? If you have progressed in faith and if you believe that you've been brought to understand some things that your brothers and sisters in Christ may not understand, you should praise God and thank God for that merciful gift, but it should humble you, not puff you up. You are perfectly and fully loved by God through Jesus Christ and that other believer who is in your sight immature, who is in your sight weak, who is in your sight maybe sometimes annoying to you or they just can't get it, that person who believes on just Jesus Christ is just as perfect and fully loved by God as you are. Because the gospel means that we are all righteous in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. The gospel excludes pride. The gospel excludes self-righteousness and judgmentalism and boasting. An ancient philosopher once said that doves take pride in their feathers and in their ability to fly high until at last they fly so high that they become prey for the hawk. Similarly, when we begin taking pride in ourselves, we are setting ourselves up for destruction. You know the verse, pride comes before the fall. God has been very gracious to our church over the past several years. Our church has experienced a remarkable season of unity and peace. Our relationships with one another have been strengthened. Our unity around the things of God has increased. There has been placed in our church a kind of love and a kind of joy that is lacking in so many other churches. And Mount Hermon, we should thank God for that gift. But friends... The quickest way for all of this to be disrupted and for the spiritual growth of this church to be stunted is for any of us to become puffed up in our own hearts. It only takes one person to do a great deal of damage. Now, by the way, I don't want anyone to think, what does the pastor know that I don't know? What's going on around here? Nothing. There is nothing that's alarming. This is because this is where we are in Romans and it seemed like a wise time to bring a, a warning to us. 
Let the gospel humble us. Let salvation humble us, not puff us up. Okay. Practical application. Here is a great way to kill pride in your life and to grow in humility. The gospel humbles us. God's way of salvation humbles us. If you want to grow in humility, think often, study, sing about your own salvation. May the gospel and the way of salvation be something that your mind constantly thinks about. Learn from the Bible how you came to be a child of God. Understand the Father's role. Understand the Son's role. Understand the Spirit's role. See how the triune God brought your salvation to pass and be humbled in the dust. In particular, read much and think much about how Christ accomplished everything necessary and what His work included. Think about the trials He went through. Think about the temptations He met with and endured perfectly to accomplish your salvation. And think about Him bearing the wrath of God in your place on the cross. As you study and think about these things, you will be killing self-righteousness. You will be killing pride. You will be killing all inclinations towards judgmentalism and boasting. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate Him on the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it, Lloyd-Jones says. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us the spirit of humility. John Stott says, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. It is your curse I am suffering. It is your debt I am paying. It is your death I am dying. Nothing in the history of the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. But it is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. Could it be that some of us are struggling with pride? Church, pride is not one of those things that some people here and there struggle with. Pride is one of those universal sins that all of us struggle with. Now, for you, it may take the opposite form of self-pity rather than boasting. Pride shows itself in two ways. One is arrogant boasting. The other is self-pity. But whatever form it takes in you, we are always struggling with pride. Look at the gospel. Look at all that Christ has done for you and be humbled. Maybe some of us have begun to struggle with a judgmental spirit. We look at others and can't help but think that we are somehow more right with God than they. 
Maybe you've even made the occasional remark to a brother or sister in Christ expressing a judgmental attitude about another Christian who thinks or acts differently than you on some matter. It is okay for you to want others to agree with you on something. It is okay for you to want others to come to an understanding you believe God has given you, but it is wicked to take pride in yourself. As if any good in you came to you by any other means than the blood of Jesus Christ. Every good gift you've ever received, including any wisdom God's given you, any understanding you've come to, any decision you've made that was truly good was a gift coming down from the Father of lights purchased by the Son of God at the cross at the cost of His life. Shame on us if we boast. We only show how foolish we really are. Look again to the gospel. Be amazed at the grace of God for sinners like us. May we worship God in humility forever because of His great grace towards us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's take a few moments now and I would ask everyone just to examine their own hearts.